Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Back in 2004, if you remember this, if I got any Nicolas Cage fans in the room, uh, mixed reviews, he made a movie called National Treasure. And uh, yeah, oh, come on, well, whatever. <laughs> if you don't know the movie, it sounds like you do. The basic plot is Nicolas Cage is a modern day treasure hunter. I like the movie for what it's worth. Uh, in his attempts, and he's attempting to track down an enormous cache of centuries old treasure. And he discovers that one of the critical clues is a map that's supposedly located on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And so in tracking down all the clues, he also finds an old pair of glasses, which had been created by Ben Franklin, which had multiple sets of swiveling lenses attached to them. So he winds up stealing, that, those are the glasses, he winds up stealing the Declaration of Independence to keep someone else from stealing it, and then uh, he winds up uniting the Declaration and the glasses together, only to be disappointed to discover that the glasses don't reveal anything, until he inadvertently, he's, he's tapping the glasses, he's like arrested or something, I think, and he moves one, and he realizes, wait a minute, there's something here I didn't see because he moves the lenses and he, it reveals to him the clue that he's been looking for. The lenses are what helped him see what he was hoping to see. And so for tonight, we're going to go on a treasure hunt together. No, we're not going to go on a treasure hunt. <laughs> but what we are going to do is we're going to look closely at these two chapters we've studied. And what I'm hoping to do is look at these two, these two ch uh, chapters through two different lenses, through two lenses in hopes that we'll see something which we may have missed in our previous readings of the text. So the lenses that we're going to look through are these. There's two. The first is the lens of the impact of the values of husbands and fathers. And the second is the lens of injustice. And my aim for tonight is that each of us in here would be convicted to see the values by which he is living and how they are affecting his family, the values by which you're living and how that is affecting your family. And then secondly, that each of us would be convicted to become aware of injustice and then to take action. That's my hope for tonight. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Thank you for these stories. Um, we're reminded and encouraged by the fact, and a little disappointed at times, that uh, your word is, is pretty messy. These stories aren't pretty. They're not, uh, they're not ones we can really look up to, but they are ones that we can learn from, Lord. And so help us to learn from this text tonight, Lord. Help it, help it to change each of us. Holy Spirit, um, the, not, nothing good happens without your power. And so I pray that you would fill each of us, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that uh, your words would come out and not mine. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first lens that we're going to look through is the lens of values. And the key principle is this. The values of a husband and a father set the culture of his family, and our wife and our children highlight these values. 
In, my, in the early years of my marriage, I valued harmony over honesty, perfection over connection, growth over love, and pace over patience. It's not that I didn't value honesty, connection, love, or patience. Those were unquestionably in my top 10 values. But the problem is they were in the bottom of my top 10. The result of my, the ordering of my values and my priorities was that the first six years of my marriage were spent with my wife knowing I loved her and I loved God, but also feeling and believing that I often didn't like her and that she couldn't live up to my expectations. In the midst of my efforts to make our marriage the best and healthiest it could be in my mind, I came to realize later that the top set of values, which were defining my leadership, had created a culture which was not what I had hoped it would be. In these two stories from our text today, we see a similar scene playing out. It's two husbands and fathers, Judah and Jacob, and they're leading their families and creating cultures which were largely unhealthy and not aligned with God's ideal for their lives. So with the first half of our time tonight, I want to analyze a few of the predominant values of Jacob and the subsequent effects of those values on his family in hopes that these examples will open our eyes to see our own values more clearly, especially the ones which are promoting unhealthy cultures within our own homes. So let's look at Jacob. This is not a comprehensive list. What's one of the values that we see in Jacob? The first is passivity. And how did this affect his family? The first example that came to mind for me was you're watching Leah and Rachel and they're offering up their servants as concubines when they themselves couldn't bear children. And what do we see in Jacob? Rather than resisting the pressure of his wives and standing up for faithful marriage, Jacob passively accepted their idea endorsing an even unhealthier paradigm for marriage than he already had. And the results, it harmed his relationship with his wife, his wives, and it imprinted a devalued view of marriage upon his family. And we see this being lived out by Reuben sleeping with Bilhah, one of his wives, and Judah marrying a Canaanite. The second example of Jacob's passivity is the responses of his sons, to the rape of Dinah, and to the behavior of Joseph as Jacob's favorite son. In both scenarios, Jacob is being passive, and in doing so, he neglected to address the anger and hurt that his sons were feeling. Rather than leaning into the deep emotions of his sons, Jacob ignored them. And this created and promoted an environment of hard-heartedness, slander, hatred, and even murder. The second value that we see in, in Jacob is favoritism. And where do we see this being played out? The first area is there's a competition between his wives to earn their place as the favorite wife. By favoring Rachel over Leah, Jacob, Jacob created a family culture in which approval felt dependent upon performance. This caused a desperation in both Leah and Rachel, prompting them to act selfishly, pridefully, and spitefully towards one another. 
The second example of favoritism is Joseph, whether intentionally or not, rubbing his esteemed position with his family in the face of his brothers. And this also falls into this bucket of passivity. By favoring Joseph above, above his brothers and not proactively helping Joseph carry himself in a mature fashion, Jacob set up the entire conflict which led to Joseph's near murder and eventual sale into slavery. By choosing a favorite son, Jacob created a death sentence for his own beloved Joseph and fostered a culture that was full of sadness, pain, and animosity. The third value that we see in, jo in, in uh, Jacob Got to give him a little credit here. He did a few things, all right. His faith. And how did this affect his family? The first one that we see, I've mentioned this before, is Jacob's wives both knew the name of Yahweh and gave him credit for the conception and birth of their children. Leah and Rachel, you got to remember, grew up in a pagan home with Laban as their father. So their acknowledgement of God during their birth during their birth battle, demonstrated that Jacob had shared his experiences with God and who God was. Their family did know Yahweh. They did, even just a little. The second example of faith is that the family obeyed Jacob's faith and buried their idols in Shechem. It's interesting, each time that Jacob steps up into his rightful position and takes on the mantle of God's chosen leader, his family follows suit. Much like the nation of Israel that we see later in Scripture, his family seems to be waiting for him to assume the position of authority which God intended for him. When Jacob chooses to follow God in faith, his family follows and it benefits from it. So the summary of Jacob is, 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 a, is the slow growth of a man who had experienced God in many ways and believed in God yet was struggling to integrate that faith into his day-to-day -day leadership. And because he was not walking with God regularly, his dominant values of passivity and favoritism, amongst others, created a family culture which was full of anger, fear, pride, and only small bits of faith. To the men who want their eyes opened, God uses our wives and our children as mirrors to show us ourselves. Cue that picture, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, that's us and our dad. <laughs> In exciting and fun ways, we watch our kids use the words we use, mimic our behaviors, and even process thoughts and emotions and ideas in ways that are similar to ours. We hear our wife pick up phrases that she never used before and crack jokes that she never used to think were funny. On the flip side, like in today's text, uh, the, our family, our wives, our kids also help us see the areas in which we're not hitting the mark as leaders of our families. The calling from this passage is to learn from the biblical leaders like Jacob to see the poor decisions that they made and the unhealthy values which they promoted and then look at ourselves, look at our wives, and look at our kids and ask, what is God showing me 
about the culture that I am building within my home. When I look at them, what do I see? So the first question is for husbands and fathers. As you look at the, at the behaviors of your wife and your children, what unhealthy elements exist in your family culture and which values of yours are promoting these? And for the single guys, you didn't get out of here unscathed. What values are you living by today? And what culture are those building for your future? For me, when I think about this, you guys, there's, well, there's a bunch, but the two that are at top of mind today, the two unhealthy values that I really, God's impressing on my heart that I know I'm demonstrating and I see showing up in my kids is impatience and irritability. I want compliance now, or I want bath time to be over now. And when it doesn't happen now, I get short with my kids and I talk to them in ways that are rude or, or coarse. And I see this same mentality coming up, coming out in both of my daughters. They want something from each other, from us. They want it now, and when they don't get it, they get short and rude in the way that they talk. That's me. That's my values coming out. What unhealthy elements are you seeing in the culture that you are leading and what values of yours are promoting that unhealthy culture? So I'm going to shift gears. One of the very unhealthy characteristics that we see in the families of both Jacob and Judah in our text today is that of injustice, which brings us to our second lens for the night through which to read Genesis. You know, it's funny. I didn't plan this. I wasn't planning to wear glasses today. Uh, I really wasn't. But it's ironic that lenses is the kind of the framing of this. So whatever. I thought it was funny. Uh, I didn't plan it. <laughs> uh, I'm a dad. <laughs> so the lens of injustice is what we're talking about. Look through the lens. And um, the key principle is that God, God allows injustice for a time, and for a purpose. And so I have a couple disclaimers to make before I talk on this topic of injustice. The first is that I'm underqualified to teach on this topic of injustice. When I look at my life, while I've experienced injustice in moments, and I've witnessed it in the lives of people around me, the reality is injustice is not a word that can be rightly used to characterize the story of my life. And so for that reason, personally, I, I'm not qualified. I don't, have, I don't have the stories of my own. That's where I'm at. The second, the second disclaimer is that the information, the thoughts that I'm going to share on this topic of injustice are focused on what God has been teaching me through this text specifically. While I'm confident the scriptural application of this message is sound, on the flip side, there's much I don't know or understand on this topic of injustice. There's words, there's phrases, there's people, there's historical moments that even in my best intentions, I don't know much about, or in many cases, I don't even know who you're talking about. And so, again, I, I apologize for that, and I've had a couple weeks of study, and I've worked hard to learn on this topic. And so, my request at the end of this is, as I teach on this topic... If I say something stupid or seemingly ignorant, I, I genuinely ask that you'd come talk to me about it. I believe in this topic as I've studied injustice. The Bible 
talks about injustice in depth. And so I believe in the importance of it. And so with that, I hope when, when I miss something that those of you who've lived with injustice, you'd be willing to come teach me. Help me to know what it's like. Teach me what I don't know. That's my request. So with that being said, because of my lack of experience on the topic, I've had to begin my studies at the remedial level. And so I asked the first very basic question, which is, what is injustice? What is it? When you look up the word injustice, Webster's Dictionary defines injustice as the absence of justice. And so I thought, well, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> so, all right, Webster, let's try this again. Uh, okay, what's justice, Webster? Well, justice is the, is the maintenance or administration of what is just. And I'm like, all right. You're not helping me here. Uh, you're just defining this by itself. So, okay, let's dig a little deeper. Let's look up the word just. So what is it to be just? Just is acting or being in conformity with what is morally upright or good. So when you put all that together, injustice is the act of inaction, it's the act of not administrating or maintaining conformity to what is morally upright or good. In other words, I, I commit injustice when I do not do what I'm able to ensure that moral uprightness and goodness are being enacted and enforced. That's injustice. And so now with a working definition of that word, of that idea, I want to look closely at today's text and highlight the injustice which incurs occurs throughout, remembering that the key principle is that God allows injustice for a time and for a purpose. And so here's a few standout examples from the text. The first injustice that we see is that Jacob, uh, Jacob chose a favorite child. The objective morally right action of a father is to love and care for all of his children equally. And yet, Jacob has chosen to ignore what is right and give the lion's share of his love and attention to Joseph at the neglect of his other sons. This is definitionally injustice. Jacob not doing what he is able to ensure that moral uprightness and goodness are being enforced. The second example that we see is Jacob's son's treatment of Joseph. Now, as we talk about it in the groups, it's pretty easy to rag on Joseph. Uh, you know, he's, he's strutting around, he's got his coat, and he's rolling out dreams on his family, and he's a narc. And so it's like, I mean, <laughs> the guy got what he, what he was asking for. No, the, the question, the question of injustice is what is morally upright or what is, a, what is the morally upright or good response to the situation at hand. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. When my brother has been a tool and said something or done something that was immature or ticked me off, I've, had, I've, I've, I've wanted to punch him in the face. And if I had the opportunity to sell him into slavery, we had this conversation over summer, I, I probably would have taken up the offer. <laughs> I would have taken him up. Um, yeah, I would have taken the offer. Those Ishmaelites would have had... Uh, a good marketing guy in their, in their department. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, based on my personal view of what was good and what was, what was wrong, 
or what was upright, those outcomes seem fair to me. And that's what we see in Jacob's brothers, a group of men who've chosen to create their own code of morality. Like our current society, these men have either not learned or rejected the truth that God's view of right and wrong, moral and immoral, is the only standard upon which true justice can be administered. Without an objective, God-defined, unchanging standard of right versus wrong, any one of us can justify any evil action that we want simply by saying, based on my understanding of truth, I just did what was good. Not That wasn't evil. That was good, based on what I, what I think is right and wrong. A culture of subjective truth where morality is defined by each individual is a culture in which injustice will reign. These last two examples from this text, this one about Joseph's brothers and this next example, highlight this idea beautifully. Continuing with Joseph's brothers, his brother's experience of injustice from their father led them to act wickedly towards Joseph genuinely believing based on their subjective standards of right and wrong that they were justified in their hateful language, their plans to kill him, and their eventual selling of him into slavery. While Reuben and Judah appear to have tried to stand for what seemed right to them, the the reality is that they failed to enact true goodness and uprightness. Joseph being sold into slavery was an injustice perpetrated by all who could have stopped it. The third example of injustice that we see is Judah and his son's treatment of Tamar. The men of this family acted so wickedly towards this woman. Onan, the middle brother, used her for sex, but refused to conceive a child with her out of spite for his older brother. Shalah, the younger brother, made no effort to pursue Tamar as his wife, despite the promise of his father. And then Judah. Judah kicked Tamar out of the house while still leading her on about marrying his younger son. Judah used her as a prostitute, an action that no man should indulge in or condone, regardless of a woman's desperation or her choice to be in that situation. And in the end, Judah nearly had Tamar burned without even asking a question about her side of the story. Three men who had the opportunity to enact goodness and uprightness upon this woman. And yet, all of them enacted wickedness instead. As we read these examples, it brings us back to our key principle and moves us closer to how we should apply this to ourselves. God allows injustice for a time and for a purpose. And so you've heard it three, four times now. And the logical question that we should be asking when we hear that is why? Why? If you've been the recipient of consistent or extreme injustice, I'm certain you've asked this question many Many times, why, God, are you allowing this injustice to continue? And Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 
reminds us as we ponder these sorts of questions to not lean on our own understanding, but to go to God and to acknowledge him. And so that's what we must do with a question of this weight is to turn back to God's word. What does the Bible say about why God allows injustice to continue? Here's a few reasons. The first is that God allows injustice to continue because his time for full justice and judgment has not yet come. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is committed to justice. Justice is coming. But God is also committed to redemption and to salvation. We live in the pain of brokenness not because God doesn't hate it or intend for it to end, but because, because the pain of eternal separation from him is far, far worse than any injustice we will face in this life, as hard as that may be to believe. God is allowing injustice because he's got more souls to save, and that takes time. The second reason God allows justice to, injustice, injustice to continue is because while injustice is inherent to our fallen world, even that God uses to draw the souls of many to him. Page through the Bible, page through your history book, the Israelites, Christians and pagan societies, black Americans throughout the history of our country. One thing we know for certain is pain is polarizing. The book of Job picks this idea clearly, depicts this idea clearly. This is a man who loved and trusted God and yet for whatever reason, God allowed, God allowed injustice to fall upon Job enacted by the devil. Job lost everything, his family, his belongings, his health, at no fault of his own. And that left him two options, to call out to God or to curse God. Injustice forces men to square up with God, to look him in the eye and to decide, do I believe him? Or do I not? Is this him doing this to me? Or is this injustice the fault of all mankind and our choice to disobey and disregard God? God allows injustice to continue because it's inherent to our broken world and the pain of it forces men to choose who do I believe? The third reason that God allows injustice and our call to action for the night is God allows injustice to continue because experiencing injustice prompts God's people to intervene. The reality of a broken world is that until God redeems creation, wickedness will continue to be present. The question is, is God doing anything to throttle the wickedness or is he just letting it run free Isaiah chapter one, God says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil, uh, the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And then he says, learn to do good, 
Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. When we experience injustice and when we see it, God is opening our eyes and saying, I'm allowing you to feel this because I want you to stand for what is right. These stories of Joseph and Tamar show us the painful results of men who do not stand for justice. Our calling as men of God, as Micah says in, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. To those like me who have lived, who have not lived in the frequent pain of injustice, God is presenting us with a picture and saying, open your eyes. When I went down to Ruth Ann's house and I saw the condition that she's living in, all I could say is, this isn't right. This isn't right. My heart broke and I got angry. I'm still angry. God is calling all of us, those who have lived in injustice and those who now can see it, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In what areas or relationships of your life is God calling you to enact and maintain rightness and goodness? For me, this, this situation with Ruth Ann is a new beginning. God is opening my eyes to see there's injustice occurring right here in my backyard, and I know there's a lot more I still do not see. This home of Ruth Ann's is in terrible condition. The air quality is atrocious. The hygiene is unacceptable. And just this week, as we talked with contractors at her home, they told us, they said, this is nothing. In fact, this is actually really in pretty good shape. They told us that 95% of the individuals who they serve and who are on Medicaid are living in homes which are in a condition equal to hers or far worse. And so I don't know where else God is leading me to step in and act, but, I, but right now it's right there. It's not 100 families. It's one woman, and it's my sister in Christ. What is, what is it for you? Where is God calling you to take action where there's inaction? So in summary, we've now looked at these stories of Jacob and Judah through two lenses. The first was the lens of values. The principle was val the values of a husband and father set the culture of a family and our wife and our children, they open our eyes to see what we're bringing home. And here's your take-home questions. Fathers and, and, and husbands, as you look at the behaviors of your wife and your children, look closely what values are you promoting which are creating an unhealthy family culture? And for the single guys, if you forgot, what values are you exercising in your life today? And what culture will these create for your future? And the second lens that we look through is that of injustice. The principle is that God allows injustice for a time and for a purpose. And the question for you to walk away with, and I hope you will, you guys, we wrestled with this question in our group. It was shocking to me, but not shocking because I'm living this. 
how little thought there was about this topic of injustice. In your group, maybe there was tons of it. And that's what is so hard and sad about this. In one group, it's painful. It's sad. There's tears in one group. It's, it's dead. There's no personal connection to this. And that's, that's largely where I've been. And so our question is, where is God calling you to bring goodness and rightness where there's been injustice? If you've experienced it, take your pain. And I hope you're leaning in. And if you haven't, man, guys, we've got a, a call. Are you going to look at this text? Are you going to watch injustice? And are you just going to go home and, and, and not see it, not look for it? Or are we going to go, okay, God, I don't even know where to look. So open my eyes. Open my eyes. And so don't leave here feeling guilty. Guys, don't leave here feeling guilty. Leave here saying, okay, God, you want me to see something new. Is it something in my family that I don't see? Am I bringing home something bad? Or is there something outside here that I need to step in and act? What is it? So let's pray and let's ask God to show. I'm going to ask that God would show each one of you what is it so that when you leave, you don't go home and go, I got nothing. I didn't change today. When you go home, you go, ha, all right, God, I hear you. So quiet your minds and let's pray. And as I pray, listen, listen to God and what he puts in your mind, take it and go and do something. Holy Father, we can't leave here the same. We can't, Lord, but we can and we do a lot. And I hope, I hope that we won't. And so Holy Spirit, Lord, I, Holy Spirit, I've prayed to you so many times in the last two years since we started Heart of a Man in ways I never had. I've, wake, I've woken up and prayed to you, Holy Spirit, what do you want from me today? And there wasn't a day that you didn't answer. And so many times I thought, that's just my voice. But I did it, and then I found out that, holy moly, that Holy Spirit, that was your voice. And so Holy Spirit now, I pray for each man here, Holy Spirit, fill these men, speak to their minds now. Spirit, just quiet their minds. Let them listen right now and show them, is it, am I cultivating a culture in my life, in my work, in my home that I need to change? Is that it, Lord? Or is there some, something happening in my life where no one is stepping in to stand for justice and I need to step in and stand? Speak it to their mind now. Holy Spirit, please. Please, please, Lord. Now, God, I pray that you would just deposit that in their minds, help these men to put it somewhere safe and help them to take it out of here. Jesus, do the good work that you've started. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen.